My name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you right after the gathering. And as John said, we are going through this teaching series called Elemental, where we're looking at the vision and values here at Anchor, what we care about, and seeing how they're connected to the life, the ministry, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because we believe that if we care about something significantly here, it needs to be clearly seen in his life. And uh, so we'll be doing that today again as we look at the value of presence. But before we start into that, into the text, I have a confession for you. Everybody's shoulders go up. I used to chew tobacco. You know what I'm talking about, Copenhagen, back pocket, that circle that's always a tell. I've gotten rid of all those genes that have that circle mark from high school, but if I hadn't, you'd, I'd be able to point to it. And honestly, looking back, I don't know why I chewed. Think about it. It tastes terrible. It's bad for you. It makes, at least me, it made me want to throw up. If there was a little bit of went down the, bleh, I don't even want to think about it. But yet, for a few years, I bought a can of Copenhagen a couple times a week, and it uh, must be something with peer pressure, right? Well, at my sophomore year in high school, I also ran cross country. And on the way back from one of the cross country meets, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to take a dip right there in the bus with all my cross country team there, trying to be secretive, but also not really caring that much. And uh, it was a new coach that had just made a new law for our cross country. If anyone was caught using tobacco or any other things that were illegal or not good for teenagers to do, you know those things. Uh, they were instantly off the team, caught, done, get out of here. We don't accept that. That was the new policy. So there I was taking a dip and a couple days later uh, I found out that someone ratted me out. Can you believe it? Whoever, whoever that rat fink is. So there's a meeting with me, the principal. I don't know why the principal needed to be involved, but the principal was that involved me, the principal, and the coach. And we talked through what would happen. And uh, man, if I was to be honest, I remember there was some glassy eyes going this direction. Uh, because I was seeing the fate of my cross-country season just dip. And we met a compromise. I was going to be suspended for two weeks. And you're probably asking, why am I telling this story? But here is the reason why. Because at the point, at the end of the meeting, the coach could have said multiple things to me. He could have looked him in the eyes and said, and just walked out without saying anything. He could have also looked me in the eyes and said, well, I hope you've learned something. We'll see you in two weeks. Both of which would be at least explainable and rational responses to what had happened as it was clear that I had broken something that was a public policy, but he didn't do either of those things. He did something significant, different. He said, hey, Brian, want to go for a run? And it was that moment that a coach became more than a coach, became a friend, but in him becoming a friend, there was not the honor that the coach title, uh, you know, warranted. It wasn't lost presence. Presence. Stepping into a person's life. Presence. This is what we're talking about today. Presence is this. I'm going to say it twice because I want us to hear it. Presence is enduring distraction or frustration to offer as much of yourself as you can to another person or to a community. Presence is enduring distraction. Hello. Enduring frustration. Come on 
to offer as much of yourself as you can to another person or to a community. That is what presence is. Presence happens in the home among spouses or siblings. And if it doesn't happen in the home among spouses or siblings, something is lost in the home. Presence happens uh, in the neighborhood as neighbors move from anonymous people that share a zip code to people that share shovels and flour and names and stories over the fence or in the front yard or maybe even in the home. That's presence. And presence also happens in a community as a smaller community is recognized by a larger community as having certain values that that strengthen and define it. And this has been one of the most beautiful things for me over the last few years of being a part of this anchor community. To field phone calls from principals that say, hey, you know, I don't go to your church, but I hear you care about Tacoma. Could you help us? What an honorable thing. What an honor for me. Because what, what does that say? It says that some, they, someone sees that we are present here, right? Someone sees that we are present. As we've launched Anchor Lincoln and, and, and Matt has planted that with his team and we've supported him. I remember conversations between John and I early on were like, Matt, do you really want to name it Anchor Lincoln? You could just call it Anchor Eastside. That opens up your area to kind of a wider swath of people. You don't want people saying, well, that's not my church because it says Lincoln District and I live in the McKinley District. You don't want that, right? And he goes, no, we want to be committed to a specific neighborhood. We want to be present. We want to be present. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yes. And it's been cool to see people buy homes in the Lincoln District that are a part of Anchor Lincoln or people that are already a part of the Lincoln District start walking to church. Why? Because there is this kingdom community that is present in this place. And just recently I told Matt, I was like, but Matt, what if you have to find a different rental lease agreement that's not in the Lincoln District? He goes, well, maybe we can change it to Anchor Eastside then. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> but the heart is to be present. The hardest to be present. Just even like looking ahead to Halloween, you know, it's coming up and every church has to wrestle with, are we going to do Hallelujah-ween? Or are we going to do the generic harvest party? Are we going to do trunk or treat? Or what are we, we going to do? And, you know, every year we've got to this point at this particular part of the season and, you know, like are we going to do kind of follow the church playbook, you know, of, of doing the trunk or treat in the parking lot? And every year we come to the same conclusion. It's like we could have everybody come to us. We could say, come to us, come to us, come to us. Look, at we have a good thing happening. And, uh, you know, we're not opposed to that. But every year we come to the same conclusion. It's like we'd much rather say, let's go to them. Let's go to them. Let's go to them. God has placed you in your neighborhoods for a purpose. And that might be the place where God wants to use you most powerfully. And so what if you invested in your neighborhood rather than being extracted from it on a particular night of the year? So we want to encourage you, go to, you know, the fam- you know, your favorite business district that has any things somewhat organized. Go, take a part of it. Talk to your neighborhood and say, hey, let's go together if you feel comfortable with that. Or, you know, welcome as you feel comfortable in this season as a part of being present. But I also want to name that probably more, more than any other time in human history, bold statement, watch out for it, it is difficult to be present. It's difficult to be present. Anne Lamont, uh, in her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, says this. She says, our minds are frequently, f- are frequently feel like casinos now. Hello, anybody? There's no sun, no pocket of quiet. There don't seem to be exits, and the reception is terrible. 
connection to anything real and to the ancient, to the mystical, to the moment is weak, so there is bound to be existential exhaustion. Have you felt it? So here we have this dilemma where so much of significance hangs on us being present, but presence is so hard. The distractions, the frustrations that are connected to being present are hard to endure, so how do we do it? Let me just tell you this, you don't exit the world's problems by using the world's solutions. It's like trying to get out of the casino by keep going like this, right? The slot machine's not gonna take you out of the casino and the world's solutions are not gonna take you out of the world's problems. We have to look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. So that's what we're gonna be doing. We're gonna be looking in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. If you have a Bible, you can open to it. It's also gonna be up on the screen. And in this particular passage, the disciples have, 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 have just witnessed the death and started to hear about the resurrection. But there are more questions than answers at this particular moment for the disciples. They don't really know all the details or understand all of the, the ways forward or who Jesus is. And they're in this middle point. In verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. Two disciples, that is. And about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. What about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God, and all the people and the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the things the prophet have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was with them at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got out and returned to, uh, once to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened to them on the way, uh, how Jesus has recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
First of all, the disciples don't completely understand who Jesus is. They use terms like, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. And then they say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They don't quite understand that Jesus is fully God, fully man, uh, come here to bring reconciliation between a holy God and broken people. They don't have that theological understanding of who Jesus is. They just know that maybe, they, I think he, maybe he was the Messiah, but he's dead and now we've got all these questions. And so they're going to Emmaus. Because where else do you go when something bad's happened? You just want to get out of town. You go to Emmaus. Not many scholars know what Emmaus, where Emmaus is. There's kind of scholarly speculation about Emmaus. But here's the thing. Emmaus literally means warm springs. You know, when all the pain hits, when it gets really hard, when it's difficult, when it's challenging, where do you want to go? You want to go to the hot springs, get a cheap Airbnb, break the Prosecco out. Come on, get that magazine going. Get something on Netflix and let's just forget about everything. They're going to Emmaus, baby, because life was hard. Life's challenging. There's too many questions. i got to get out of here. And as they're walking away, Jesus starts walking with them. There's another scholarly opinion that it wasn't this resort town. It was this place of ancient military victory. In fact, a town called Emmaus was the site of a Jewish victory over the Romans a couple hundred years before Jesus. And so some say that in the disciples going to Emmaus, they were not fleeing, but they were getting ready to fight, hungering for the militant Messiah. If Jesus didn't defeat Rome, they would. Which is it? Flee or fight? It's almost as if Scripture leaves it vague because we deal with those same things, right? Some of us over the last two years have felt the flee or fight impulse. I just want to turn it off. I just want to be done. I just want to escape and get out of here. Or I just want to wring that person's neck because he's being an idiot and he needs to stop and I'm the one to stop him. Flee or fight. In this way, we can connect with the disciples that one of which doesn't have a name. Maybe he's even more appropriate because... He's kind of like all of us. And there, in the midst of the disciples running away, Jesus walks with them. We don't know a lot about Emmaus, but we know that Emmaus is seven miles away from their confusion, their heartache, and their doubt. They want to get seven miles away. And there, in verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. The Greek description of walking along is that Jesus caught up with them. He brought up his little robe and he kind of jaunted, caught up. He, he broke a little sweat in the ancient Near East to catch up to them so that he could be shoulder to shoulder, not talking from behind. And then he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And so we learned the first element of presence by looking at the person of Jesus. Presence means staying curious. You know, Jesus knew them. They were disciples, it says. Jesus knew who they were. So, and, and because they were disciples, he probably knows, you know, like their, their faces and their stories. And it's like, you know, one of them is an unnamed, Cleopas and the other, you know, but they weren't a part of the 12, but they were probably a part of that kind of outer circle, those kind of like Jesus groupies that they were like, oh, Jesus is in town. We got to go, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And they probably, after one of the times where there was a miracle or something like that, went up to Jesus and they're like, hey, 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 Jesus, yeah, no, we've been following you for a while. We're really glad of all the things you're doing. We're thankful and, you know, we're going to keep following you. Um, my name's Cleopas and, yeah, hey, I don't have a name because Luke forgot it. And anyways, we're really, we're really excited to be here. And 
Jesus probably knew them. He recognized them. And because they were disciples, he knew not only them, but what they were wrestling with, but he still asks this question, hey, what are you guys talking about? He stays curious. Presence means staying curious. And the next verse is fascinating because it describes this powerful reality. It says, they stood still with their faces downcast. What does that mean? It means they stopped walking. And their faces were downcast. You can learn a lot about sadness and shame and sorrow by how our body reacts to it. And what happens is we see that, that Jesus, in his curiosity, reveals reality. Curiosity reveals reality. This is true of science. Think about it. It's the innovators and the inventors that are, that are asking the questions that are at the front edge of things that people haven't asked, that they're the ones that end up bringing something new to the world that the world hasn't yet seen, but it was dormant in the earth to be revealed, whether it was it's rocket ships or some to, new technology. It's, as Eleanor Roosevelt says, the future belongs to the curious. It's true of science, but it's also true of relationships. It's also true of people. So when you ask a question with, like honor and meaning and, and intentionality that usually brings something to the surface that wasn't spoken but was there. They stood still and their faces were downcast. Curiosity reveals reality. Jesus is an expert at asking questions. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the scriptures, in the gospels, he's always asking questions. And they aren't just kind of like, hey, how are you doing? Cool, good, uh, see you later, bye. You know, he's asking questions that probe the depths of who we are and, and, and really get to our base emotions, concerns, anxieties, fears, hopes, etc. In John chapter 1, verse 38, the disciples that are become disciples. They aren't disciples yet, but they are just following Jesus around at a distance. Jesus at one point turns around and says, what are you looking for? which is a question that is like more significant than it seems. It's like, what are you hungering for? What are you dreaming about? What do you need? Jesus' curiosity unearths reality. In John chapter 20, verse 15, Mary has just been to the empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. Mary, you know, had this really powerful relationship with Jesus and, 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 and she's crying and weeping and Jesus meets her there in the middle of her tears and says, woman, why are you weeping? The subtext is I'm here. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and 29, Jesus gathers his disciples around. He says, who do they say that I am? Well, they're like, everybody say, you know, somebody thinks this, somebody thinks this, and I, I don't, you know, that's the, the public opinion is such as, and then Jesus asks this probing question, he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Curiosity reveals reality. It reveals identity. It reveals what's hidden, but is still there. In John chapter 8, when the woman is caught in adultery, brought before the people to stun her, and all the people have left because they recognize they have sin in their life because Jesus facilitates this beautiful, holy moment. And then Jesus looks eye to eye with this woman and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus' curiosity reveals reality. Jesus' curiosity is a mark of his presence, his interest. And, but curiosity is, goes beyond uh, just revealing reality. Curiosity communicates value. Do you know that? Curiosity communicates value. When Kenneth and I first started hanging out together back when we were college age, young adults, we would go on walks together, long walks, not on the beach in Ellensburg, Washington, sorry. 
And, um, you know, I, I like to say that I was so smooth, I was dating her before she even knew it, um, she would dismiss that comment because she was not interested and I was too timid. That's the real reason. But as we walked along, what dominated our conversation but my questions and her questions and our questions for each other, to each other. Why? Because we were interested in each other. Curiosity communicates value. Curiosity is a mark of presence, that I'm fully present here and I'm interested in you and I'm asking questions because I want to learn about you. It communicates value. In fact, even when you just sit down to the computer or your phone and you type in something in the Google search bar, what are you doing? You're communicating value. The fact that you're searching for it on Google says that it's valuable enough for you to exert energy in it. So Jesus, when he asks a question, he's communicating value. Typically, you know, we're, we're not that familiar with this level of personal, relational curiosity, which is a mark of presence, because we either, we typically assume rather than ask, right? When you assume, you're writing the story for the person and you're distancing the relationship. Oh, that's why they're that way. Oh, that's, well, that explains that. Yeah, I can see clearly why that is the case for that person at this time. But when you ask, you invite them to share the story. And you deepen the relationship. Assume, distance the relationship, you write the story in your head. Asking, they write the story, it deepens the relationship. Jesus is good at showing presence and valuing people with his curiosity. This is important to note that this curiosity we're talking about is not some kind of like new age pop psychology hack of like, hey, here's how you can be mindful in your life. It's like, no, we're just looking at Jesus and paying attention to him, seeing what he does, doing what he does. Because more, presence goes beyond just being curious. Presence means embracing challenge. Check this out. Verse 25, it says, He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the things that prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Greek there could be translated, in fact, it's better, it's more clearly translated, or literally translated, unwise and slow of heart. How unwise and slow of heart are you guys? But it's interesting because Jesus doesn't just challenge them. We are really good at challenging someone and walking away. Mic drop, see you later, I won, you lose, we done. We're really good at that. But Jesus challenges them, but what does he do? He stays with them, explains with them, walks with them. His challenge isn't divorce from relationship. His challenge exists in, I'm going to keep walking with you. I'm going to keep talking with you. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I was saying when I said that. His challenge exists within relationship rather than breaking the relationship. We're good at doing this. We, we can get really close to somebody, but then be too timid to say the necessary words that need to be said in the moment they need to be said because we're just too timid. And then on the other side, we're really good at being at a distance and demeaning at a distance. Jesus does neither of those things. He gets really close, and he gets really challenging. This past week, um, uh, my, a mentor of 12 years that 
honestly, I can look at his impact on my life and I see most of my healing that Jesus has brought was through that relationship, just unexpectedly passed away. And honestly, like kind of the emotions are still kind of close to the surface. Um, but I've been thinking back on my relationship with him, you know, over you know, the last decade plus, And I, you know, I remember how this mentor of mine, he challenged me. Not in a shame on you, Brian type of way. But probably two of the most challenging, the ways he challenged me most was first was he challenged me to see myself as God sees me. We'd often pray at the end of our times meeting, whether it was in person or over the phone or through Skype. I don't know why. He was like the only person I ever knew that you still use a Skype. But um, he's like, why don't you Skype me? And I'm like, I think that means FaceTime. But no, it means Skype. Okay. Uh, and at the end of our times, after I've shared, you know, what's going on in my life, what's going on in my head, my things that are, are weighing heavy on my heart, the, the, you know, the sins that I'm working through and letting God into, he would always pray this, th- this prayer. He would say, God, I'm so thankful for being a friend, for the chance to be a friend to this awesome, awesome, awesome man. It always felt weird. I'd open my eyes and be like, dude, I just shared all the uh, awesome. I don't use the term awesome very often. I use it to describe skateboard tricks and God. Like, that's like where, that's what awesome, awesome goes those directions. So to hear me referred to as awesome was like off-putting and it was frankly challenging. He consistently challenged me to see myself as God sees me, as beloved, as loved, as a son. Not as some mess up, screw up that, but as loved. He challenged me to see others as God sees them. I remember one time in particular, early on when we started meeting, I, uh, I was sharing how frustrated I was with someone, and uh, it was none of you, it was a long time ago, don't worry. Uh, and, uh, and he said something to me, he said, Brian, isn't it awesome that God has placed you in a place to, to kind of like show this person what Jesus looks like, and you can steward this relationship as like, they, can look ba- they could look back on it and just say how you were patient. Isn't that cool that God's placed you in this place? And I'm like, oh, yeah, mate. Fine, yes, okay, you know. He challenged me to see myself as God sees me, to see others as God sees me. As your pastor, I want to challenge you. You're like, I just came here for the first time. I don't know if you're my pastor. Still, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in three ways. That you would see yourself as God sees you. That you would not let the accusations of the enemy be the definition of who you are. You would not let the sum total of your sins be the definition of who you are. But in the mirror, you would know that you are loved. In the mirror, in your life, in your day, that you would know, I am so deeply loved. That I am seen as nothing less than a daughter or a son of God. I want to challenge you that you would see others as God sees them. Not as just annoyances, but as people with stories that are also loved by God. This is hard, challenging work. But this is presence, to endure distraction, to endure frustration, to offer as much as we can to the person, to the community, to the other. This is presence. And third, I want to challenge you to see God as he truly is. 
Culturally, we like to domesticate him around our little preoccupations. And if we need something, we call on him. He's some type of cosmic butler or he's a slot machine. And, or sometimes we see him as wrathful and angry and at such a distance that he would never be interested in us. But God is both holy and loving. We have to let God be who God is. I want to challenge you in those three ways. Third presence waits for the invitation. This is important. In verse 28, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus wasn't playing with them there. He wasn't be like, Okay, I'm going to go. Are you sure? I'm, I'm really going this time. You know, he wasn't like, you know, at the end of the meal, you know, you're like, who's got the tip? And you're like, oh, I got it. And you're trying to like, you know, you know you're not, you don't got the tip, but you're just like, oh, I think I got, oh, we just, it's somewhere here. It's in my, uh, somewhere, come on. It's got to be somewhere. And you're just like waiting for the other person to do it. And then they're like, uh, but they're doing the same thing. And eventually you're just like, you know, like uh, somebody's got to, no, we're not tipping. or You know, Jesus isn't going to playing with them. He's really waiting for them to give them, or to, to get an invitation from them. Jesus is really waiting for an invitation. Why? Because presence doesn't push. Presence doesn't impose. There's this great quote, it's a long quote by the author Shane Woods, who wrote the book Between Two Trees, and he's writing this book about John, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. If you know about it, it's, This verse where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is knocking and waiting for an invitation. And maybe if you are above a certain age, you're familiar with these paintings where this like Caucasian Jesus is kind of like with his blonde flowy hair. You know, Fabio Jesus is kind of knocking at the door and he's like looking at the the painter. You know, like, here I am, knocking on the door, you know. It's like, don't imagine that when you imagine Jesus. He said, Shane Wood says this, to give permission to another is a moment charged with intimacy. Let me read that again. To give permission to another is a moment charged with intimacy, a gesture suffused with intensity. For permission is an invitation to closeness. Permission reroutes the boundaries of our world to include another, to welcome another, to incorporate another into what is by design our own. Jesus stands at your door and knocks, because your permission is sacred. He will not force his way in because he wants you to choose him. He wants to be in relationship with you, not force you to follow him. He could do that, but he chooses a different route because permission is sacred. Presence doesn't impose, presence doesn't dominate, because if it would, it wouldn't be presence. It would be self-assertion. It would be will It would be domination. Presence waits for the invitation. But presence is neither passivity. It's not kind of like this kind of like, it's not this shrinking away passivity. I remember my high school sophomore year, I nervously avoided asking anyone to uh, homecoming because I thought they might say no, so I figured better to not go than ask someone and hey or no. So eventually somebody that I didn't want to invite, uh, didn't want to ask me, asked me, and I said, fine, because I didn't want to let her down. God's not like that. He's not kind of like shirking away, kind of like, I wonder if they like me, you know. 
He's fully present, fully strong, holy, but also waiting for permission, waiting for an invitation. Paul knew this. That's why in Colossians 4, verse 3, he says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for the message. He's like waiting for the open door. I believe this, that right now for Jesus' followers and the world, you know, so much hangs on open doors and taking invitations. Right? The true power, power of presence hangs on open doors and invitations. Here's this beautiful thing, is that... Um, the invitation is extended. Jesus, come, come, come in. We don't know you are Jesus yet, so back that up, Brian. We, person, come in. And so it moves from an open invitation to an open chair. Check this out, verse 30. When he was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus opens the scriptures on the road, but the hearts are opened around the table, okay? So that means that there is a gap, there is a distance between somebody saying, uh, understanding something conceptually to somebody's life being changed, this is what an invitation does. An invitation is, is they might understand something conceptually, but the invitation is to something deeper, and usually the transformation happens there. Not the open, being the scriptures, though that is powerful, and sometimes, the, but usually it's kind of, a, it takes a little a while for that seed to break apart and to grow. And, uh, you know, that's what we see here, this passage of scripture. Here's the beautiful thing, is that Jesus walks with them the, all the way to the destination where they were just trying to get away. Jesus will walk with you as you walk away. But the point is that you might know him truly as he truly is. They walk seven miles to get away from the heartache only to find out they're, that they're with their healer. The whole point at the end of the story is how far Jesus will go for you to know him. He'll walk seven miles. He'll walk seven miles with you. He'll walk seven years with you. He'll walk through seven times seven bouts with a certain sin for you. He just wants your invitation for more. He'll endure personal misunderstanding. Not because he's weak, but because he's love. This is presence. How do I know this? Because Jesus has gone even farther. Jesus got, has gone from the infinite gulf of heaven to earth to be born among us, die for us, so that we might be as present to God as he is present to us, so that we might be known not by our own brokenness, but by his righteousness. And he's done this at his own cost for our sake. That's how I know that Jesus will walk through seven miles and seven years and seven times, 7,000 sins if you just keep giving that invitation to something more. This is the invitation to you. Some of us in the room are not yet Jesus followers. We came in, with doubt, cynicism, and questions, and the invitation to you is, will you give the one who loves you permission? Will you invite him in? And for some of us, it's the invitation is a renewed invitation. For some of us, it's a, I'm, 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 he's already invited in, but I'm gonna sit down and be present with him as he is present with us. The invitation is extended in a variety of ways, but it's all to us. 
And the invitation is also to you that you might be as present as, uh, present as Jesus is with you to your neighbor, to your sibling, to your spouse, to your coworker, that you might take the presence that Jesus showed you and bring it to your community, to your world. This is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be Jesus followers. This is what it means to be here at Anchor. Under your chairs, there's communion. And during the next song, when the band can come up, um, you're invited to remember the depths and the, and the length that Jesus has walked to us. As we take the bread, we're reminded of his body. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you gather, as much as you can, gather and break bread and remember that I, my body was broken. And, and as you take and taste the juice, you're reminded of his blood. And do this as much as you can. Remember that I gave my life. I poured out everything for you so that you might be brought together with God and have eternity with him. There's also prayer stations at each corner and, and the prayer is available for you. It's available for you. If there's something in your life, whether personally with you or something that you know of another person that needs prayer and you stand as a surrogate in that spot saying, would you pray? Would you be with my friend, my family member? It could be physical healing. It could be spiritual healing. It could be whatever it is. We pray that and ask, and we're praying before the gathering that there might be courage to step from the chair to the place to receive prayer. And as we step into this next set of worship, I just want to pray for us. And she may extend a hand. It was a symbolic gesture. God, we are open to you. Help us to be a community that is present in an age of distraction and easy frustration. Help us to be a community that is present. Help us to be curious. Help us to embrace challenge. Help us to wait for the invitation and to take it, knowing that you first expressed presence in those ways to us. And right now, Spirit of God, would you be moving in power, in, in, in silent, slow, un- invisible ways and in powerful, noticeable, wow ways. God, would you be moving, forming a community, bringing healing, we pray in the name of Jesus.